We often, and perhaps too often, quote Charles Spurgeon. He's, he's like a favorite for preachers. And so I'm going to not quote Charles Spurgeon this morning. I'm going to quote his mom. And in his autobiography, it's two volumes, and I would strongly recommend you read this if you haven't yet. He talks about what it was like to grow up in his Christian home and with his Christian mom, and how she would often bring the children together, and she would read from Puritan authors that would confront them about the eternal condition of their soul, books that went by wonderful titles such as Alarm. Sounds like a warm and comforting book. Or how about Baxter's Call to the Unconverted? And after reading these books and chapters from these books, she would then ask questions of them. For example, how long it would be that they would live in their state of rebellion against God and not seek the Lord. And if that wasn't enough, she would pray in this way, and Spurgeon says, I remember on one occasion her praying thus, quote, Now, Lord, if my children go on in their sins, it will not be from ignorance that they perish, and my soul must bear a swift witness against them at the day of judgment if they lay not hold of Christ. Wow. Spurgeon said, you can imagine what it was like to hear mom pray that around the table. That if my children persist in their sin, it won't be for ignorance because I've taught them God's truth. And if on that day of judgment it's necessary, I will be one of the ones who must stand and testify against them. Brothers and sisters, motherhood is a serious, serious responsibility. Now, I know that it's normally my practice to be as extemporaneous as I can be, having spent due diligence in the text throughout the week and feeling like I know that and can just share my heart with you, but I am going to tell you ahead of time it's going to be a little bit different this Sunday, and I've prepared a bit more of a manuscript because this is a lesson, it's a teaching, it's almost a lecture, and I hope despite that you'll stay with me and you'll listen because I do believe that the weight and the seriousness of this topic warrants a particularly careful wording, and that's what I've endeavored to do this morning. So if you are visiting with us, I want you to know ahead of time it isn't normally how we do things uh, here. Hopefully, we're normally very careful, but not quite as structured. But this morning, I think it's important to do that. I would argue at the outset that the church needs mothers who are godly and gritty, tough and tender, smart and shrewd. Mothers like Eliza Spurgeon. Mothers who are willing to bring to bear in a loving way, the reality of the gospel, the reality of the high calling of the law of God, but then with that, the beautiful truth of 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, that in him all has been accomplished and you could rest once you receive his imputed righteousness. Motherhood is not easy because it is eternally significant and it is about the gospel. It fits into the storyline of all of redemptive history in a very special way. In fact, if you consider the creation and the fall and redemption and restoration of the woman, you can see that in her own being, she is perfectly displaying the overarching theme of biblical theology. My aim then in this sermon is to make a case for motherhood as something redemptive. That's my primary goal. But secondarily, I want you to see that it's also something unique and wonderfully and universally female. And that broadens the application to include women who may not have the opportunity or the ability to be mothers. And I hope that it applies then to all women, and I trust that will be clear by the time we're finished. Now, just by way of context, I'm going to go to three passages of Scripture. Two of them are in Genesis, and one of them is in Paul's first letter to Timothy. And I want to build a case for what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a woman. But the, ori- the origin of, of motherhood, if we're to understand that, the origin of motherhood is to be found in womanhood. The origin of woman is found in man. The origin of man is found in the earth. The origin of the earth is found in God. And therefore, what you see is that in God's creation, uh, there is this ongoing reality from dirt to man to woman from original creation to new creation, and all that will be realized in the resurrection. To understand the creation of woman, then, you have to understand the history of man. And the Hebrew word, Adam, where we get our English word Adam from, when it is written in the Hebrew language, will often have a definite article So you would translate that directly into English as the Adam or the man. And when we read the man, it's a reference to males or a reference to all of humanity. And by contrast, Adam, when there is no definite article, would refer to a man or a human or the proper name Adam. But what's interesting to me is that the word Adam doesn't appear that way as a name until Genesis chapter 4, verse 25. The entire creation account, the entire fall account, uh, the entire promise of God to redeem and restore fallen humanity all happens within the ongoing dialogue between the man and the woman as representatives of humanity. And so for our purposes it's very important to note that in Genesis 2, chapter 18, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 20, we are talking about the condition of mankind, not the condition of just one man. When we drop into Genesis 2, 18 to 20, the famous narrative, it is a reference to mankind, 
not a specific targeted reference to the man, Adam. It applies to Adam. It was created by Adam's situation, but it doesn't apply only to Adam. It was not good that humankind be represented by only a man. That's the point and the context and the situation for the first point that I'd like to make this morning with reference to Eve as the mother of all the living, and that is her identity. We're going to look this morning at her identity, her name, and her role in redemptive history. If you have a bulletin with you, there are some details contained inside which might help guide you along this journey that we're going to take this morning. But first of all, her identity. We see this in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 18. Then Yahweh God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him an azer kenegdo. Here we have the first example of God interceding for man. God is an interceding God. God intercedes for man when he determines that man is in need and man here is in need. God goes about seeking him to intercede for him and he does so in this way. And then Yahweh God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him in your English translation. Now out of the ground, Yahweh God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Genesis 2, 18 and 20 use the phrase in the original, azer kenegdo, which is, I hope to prove to you in a moment, vastly more than the freight that the English word helper can bear. Man was not left alone on account of his loneliness. Man was not alone on account of his loneliness. It was not not good that man be alone because man didn't have any company. Man was perfectly and completely satisfied in God. Man had God. Man was not in need of somebody else to make up for his loneliness. But because the animals provided no equal to him with which he could multiply and subdue the earth as God had instructed him to do in Genesis 1, 27 to 28. It was not good that man was alone because man alone could not fulfill the great commission. The first great commission. And when God brought to the man all of the animals, we don't know how this worked. It wasn't necessarily like when the animals came to Noah two by two, male and female on their way into the ark. For all we know, God may have chosen to bring before 
Adam all of the female animals, just to make it clear that none of them would be appropriate. None of them would be adequate. None of them would be his equal in order to fulfill the commission that God had given to him. So God uses the very flesh and bone of the man himself to create the woman, and in doing so, he creates something here referred to as azer kenegdo. Those are two different words. I'm going to take a moment to reinforce the significance of each for you. The first word is that word azer, the word inadequately translated helper in our English Bibles most often. It does appear several other times in the Hebrew Old Testament, but not that many. In fact, enough that I could give you all the examples right now that are appropriate because they all here apply not to the woman, not to the woman who would be named Eve, but every other instance with the exception of a couple which referred to an implement of war, they refer specifically to God himself. On a factor of 10 to 1, the word is used to describe God himself. For Moses said, my father's God was my helper. Exodus 18, 4. Hear, O Yahweh, the cry of Judah, be his help against his foes. Deuteronomy 33, 7. There is no God like the God who rides on the heavens to help you. Deuteronomy 33, 26. Who is like you, a people saved by Yahweh? He is your shield and helper and your glorious sword, Deuteronomy 33:29. May he send help from the sanctuary and support from Zion, Psalm 20, verse 2. We wait in hope for Yahweh. He is our help and shield, Psalm 33:20. You are my help and my deliverer, Psalm 70, verse 5. I have granted help to the one who is mighty, Psalm 89, 19. House of Israel, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and shield. O house of Aaron, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and shield, Psalm 115, 9 to 11. My help comes from Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, Psalm 121, 1 and 2. Our help is in the name of Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, Psalm 124, verse 8. Blessed is he whose help is God of Jacob, whose hope is in Yahweh his God, Psalm 146, 5. And then for those who would turn from God, their Azer. The last reference, Hosea 13, 9, says, You are destroyed, O Israel, because you are against me, against your helper. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is your health and salvation. The name that Eve is described by is Azer Kenegdo, 
What does that second part mean? It means simply this, equal plus conspicuously plus to him. Uh, this word translated suitable in Genesis 2, 18 and 20, it's a Hebrew word that comes from the root neged. It means what is conspicuous, what is totally obvious to everybody. And there's a Hebrew prefix at the beginning that means according to, and a suffix at the end that means him. And so the word is built. And in the Hebrew language, the word is built in a very obvious way to say that this helper that is created by God from the man is a helper, strong and powerful, this deliverer, who is conspicuously according to the stuff of him. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint, and it uses the word boethon, pronounced boethon, to refer to azer, and it translates it this way, a vital help corresponding to him in verse 18, and then most interestingly in verse 20, it appears, using language that the early church used to describe the equality of the Trinity and could be literally translated in verse 20, a vital help with identical essence to Him. So, God made another person out of the first person by putting him to sleep and removing a significant portion of his physical body. The English word rib is grossly inadequate to communicate what's going on here because the word in the Hebrew literally means a side wall, a retaining wall, the large section of what held up something else. It was taken from him and from that, God made her. And the similarity and the compatibility was so conspicuous that when he looks at her, the man makes a reasoned conclusion. A man whose mind had not been corrupted by the fall. A man whose mind operated in every level the way that some rare Savants today can do spectacular things with their minds. Imagine somebody who could do that with his whole mind, uncorrupted by sin and the fall. He doesn't merely observe the woman and say some exclamation about her beauty, though I presume she was the most beautiful woman ever created. He does not, as some people say, break forth in spontaneous poetry because he was perfect. And even we know it's not a good poem. Rather, he evaluates the situation and he arrives at a reasoned conclusion. And he says, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This, he says, is perfect unity and compatibility. She is a perfect completion for him. This new 
creation is entrusted with the privilege and responsibility of subduing the earth with Him. She was the first woman and the one person who was given the distinct privilege to bring complete reflection of the image of God as we know it. As one author put it, the woman was never meant to be an assistant or helpmate to the man. The word mate slipped into English since it was so close to the old English meet, which means fit to or corresponding to the man. What God had intended then was to make a power or strength, azer, for the man who would in every way correspond to him and be his equal. She is his equal. As a woman, she would have had the potential to be a mother. And to be a mother, you need to be a woman. And her identity as a woman is the crowning achievement of creation. It's the completion of mankind and the co-ruler in the first great commission. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the living things that move on the earth. When God said, let us make mankind in our own image. It was a Trinitarian declaration. It was made to show that humankind, looking forward then to both male and female, would bear the image of the triune God. But for the woman, there was a unique contribution, and that was revealed in, secondly, her name. So we've looked at her identity. Now what about her name? Genesis 3 and verse 20 reads, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Her name, the proper name given to her is Eve, and her name means life. She is the one who is going to bring all life, all human life, into the cursed and fallen world. All the living must come from her as a woman because no living being can come from man. It's worth noting that not until after the fall would the woman be called the mother of all the living. It wasn't until after it was declared that it was into this fallen creation she would bring life. What a grace from God. What a redeeming and wonderful and relieving truth that that into this world that had been cursed, ground that had been cursed, relationships that had been cursed, even though he says that you will have pain in childbearing, she had no idea what pain meant and she had no idea what childbearing meant. But it was immediately after that, that that Adam identifies her as the one who would be the mother of all the living. And that despite the pain, she would bring forth life. And ultimately, as we will see, new life, new birth, spiritual birth. Genesis 2.23 says, She will be called woman because she was taken out of man. But here the man calls his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. 
Only the woman can be a life giver. So the man identifies her nature, an equal image bearer, and then he gives her a name that revealed a special gift. Brothers, listen to me. There is a myth that the man was demonstrating some kind of authority or ownership over the woman when he named her. However, nothing in the text, nothing in the context, nothing in the narrative, and nothing in the scope of redemptive history ever suggests that. Instead, the privilege of assigning a name in all of the Hebrew narratives comes as a privilege reserved for the one who can best describe that person. It reveals your awareness of their character and virtues, and this is consistent throughout the book of Genesis. For example, to make my point, locations like Babel and Bethel were named by the people who knew best what they represented. Names like Isaac and Ishmael were given to them by people who had direct revelation from God as to what they would become. If naming somehow means authority and ownership, then we all ought to follow Hagar, who apparently exercises ownership and authority over God Himself when she gives Him a name He's never had before in Genesis 16, 13, the God who sees. Far from ownership or authority, what the naming means is that the person has a unique and special awareness of the character of the person being named. The man is simply identifying that he knew that she had the unique potential for motherhood and that it belonged to her and not to him, and that her female characteristics and attributes are rooted in the image of God. Sisters, your female feminine attributes are rooted in the person and the image of God. A gentle and quiet spirit is not a female virtue. It is a divine virtue. What you represent in some of the unique and some of the dispositional attributes in your womanhood reflect attributes in God Himself channeled through you. You were not created in the image of man. You were created in the image of God. Her name is rooted in her identity. Her identity is rooted in God and the name woman, which means equality of image bearing. The name Eve, which points to the secondary purpose of childbearing. This was not her primary role as a woman. Her primary role as a woman was to bear the image of God. However, as a woman, she also has the unique ability 
to bring forth life as part of the unfolding story of redemption. As we'll see in our third point now, her role. Now for this, we're going to move forward to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verses 13 through the first part of 14, where we see this, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing. Her role in redemptive history can be summarized as the prophetic announcement that in the course of time, she will bring salvation through Messiah. The word for here, it's a, a conjunction, if you look there in 1 Timothy, that proves the connection between what is said in this verse and what precedes the others. And the fact is, Adam was formed first. That's just a chronological reality. It doesn't mean he's superior. It just means that when God was choosing which of his image bearers to make first, he chose Adam. He made Adam out of dirt. He made the woman out of the man. The man needed a perfectly formed counterpart to accurately depict the image of God on earth. And so we see in 1 Corinthians 11, 8, and 9, the man already existed. He needed a co-equal person of the same essence, and therefore woman was created for the sake of mankind. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 to 12 should read, if properly translated, nevertheless, in contrast to the authority granted to a woman over her own head, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for just as the woman is of man, so the man is also by woman, and all things are of God. There is absolute codependency in the best possible use of that term. However, Eve, because of her transgression, does bear the guilt of violating God's law. She was deceived. Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Adam, we see, was not deceived. No, Adam simply chose to sin. Eve became a transgressor by transgressing the law of God. And that means that everyone, the entire human race, were going to be children of a transgressor and offspring of transgressors. In fact, God doesn't limit the blame, as it were, to Eve. In fact, after this, it is not mentioned again, but comes under the role of Adam as federal head. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam his offspring all die, so also in Christ his offspring all shall be made alive. How is that possible? It's possible because of the life giver. You see, back to Eve's transgression, notice what it says. The grammar holds the key to understanding the meaning. The grammar in the original holds the key to understanding the meaning of the text. It is not difficult exegesis. But somehow it has belied translators and caused them to contort the text into an English rendition 
that makes almost no sense to the casual reader. If we were to translate this as it is explained to us in simple Greek grammar, we would see the subject of the will be saved, the she will be saved, the the subject of will be saved is the woman back in verse 14. Who is the woman in 14? It's Eve. Eve is in view here. Eve will be saved. The promise is that she, Eve, will be saved, and saved means saved, (laughs) redeemed. And though she is the mother of transgression, she is also the mother of salvation. This will come through childbearing, namely the bearing of the Messiah. And this is predicted in Genesis 3.15. It fits the context. From her would come the one that would crush the head of the serpent that deceived her. Sisters, listen to me. There is a myth that you share in the responsibility and the stigma of the fall simply because you are a woman. That is not true. There is a myth that runs parallel to this, suggesting that you are released from the shame by having and raising godly children. Nothing in this text nor any other scripture supports that interpretation. Back to Eve, ultimately her salvation is the basis for the great commission in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. All authority is given to that Christ that came from her and he exercises it through his people on the earth. It's the spiritual and the eternal version of the original commission that was given in the garden to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. What was declared at the beginning to be fulfilled on earth is reiterated before the ascension to be fulfilled in earth and in the new earth, when not only physical life will be present, but spiritual life too. You see, the gates of hell will not hold back the gospel of Jesus Christ, a man born of woman, born under the law to fulfill the law and the prophets and to reverse the effects of sin for all the elect, even Eve, making her the mother of all who are born and born again. You see, Eve was not deceived because she was a woman. Sisters, There is a myth that somehow women are more easily deceived than men. And I hate to say this, but it's been promoted by pastors. It is true that Eve was deceived. But every other place that that word is used, every other context, it talks about the deception that men are subject to. Sin used law to deceive Paul, Romans 7, 11. False teachers deceive the ignorant, Romans 16, 18. Proud men deceive themselves in 1 Corinthians 3, 18. And end times fanatics are easily deceived, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. It has nothing to do with being a woman. Every mature Christian woman becomes a spiritual mother to those who she disciples and points to Christ. 
You see, this isn't just for those who are physically mothers. If that were the case, what would we say to a woman who never got married or never had children, either because she chose not to or because she couldn't? If it really is true that women bear some stigma that is only overcome by raising godly children, what do you say to the woman who doesn't have children or the woman who hasn't raised children that turn out to be godly? What sort of cruel deception do you inflict upon them when you leave them to believe that somehow, as a consequence of their not being married or having children, that they are second-class image bearers in the eyes of God, and how easy do you make it for women for whom God has granted marriage and children and multiple healthy children at that to be tempted to be proud? The mother of all the living is alive in every woman as she rescues those around her from the perils of a thoughtless spiritual life. The motherhood that every woman can demonstrate is the motherhood that she did inherit from Eve, the mother of all the living. The church needs spiritual mothers to protect believers from predators who would seek to devour them with man-made laws and false teaching. Mothers, women, have been given as a consequence of their image-bearing I believe we would all agree a special instinct to protect, and when it's activated, sisters trust it. So, to you women, my sisters, to you mothers, will you make it your aim by the power of the Holy Spirit to use your wisdom for good, to use your powerful assistance and rescuing ability as an image bearer? to do good? Will you, on a physical level, consider helping to care, for example, for infants in our nursery so that these tired new moms could have a more fruitful worship experience? And perhaps the rest of us a slightly less distracted one. This is something you can do, whether you've had children or not. On a spiritual level, will you help to care for infant believers, guiding them with life-giving words? My own precious wife, mother to our children, so often reminded me of the special privilege that mothers have to regularly dispense words of wisdom and life to their children. And my children stand as testimony to faithfulness in that regard. Proverbs 10, 21, 12, 18, 15, 4, 16, 24, 18, 21. The pure milk of the word delivered up as it were to hungry believers that they might grow in wisdom and spiritual strength, steering them clear from legalism on the one side and lawlessness on the other and investing in them for nothing but the eternal reward that comes 
from the pleasure of our Savior. And to you men, brothers, will you take to heart the instruction from Paul in 1 Timothy 5.2? Will you treat all the older women in the church as spiritual mothers, worthy of your honor and respect, worthy of the same honor you would give to your own mother? Will you treat all older women this way? And will you treat the younger women in our church as spiritual sisters in all purity, caring for them as you would your own sister? Women are the vital azer kenegdo for men. Eve, the first, would also be the mother of all the living because she brought forth a life that would bring life to the ones who believed. And the man named the woman Eve after the fall, after the curse, because he saw in her his own future redemption, not as his wife, but as the mother of the one who would bring forth the deliverer. Brothers and sisters, she is the one who would bring forth the ultimate and final Azer Konegdo. Jesus Christ was sent to be the infinitely powerful help that comes from a covenant-keeping God, and he was made to be conspicuously like us of our own essence and of our own substance so that he could bring deliverance to every member of the human race who believed in him. She not only prefigured the ultimate Azer Konegdo, but she in time brought him forth. Oh, the women around Ruth and Naomi could celebrate the fact that she'd been redeemed. And later on, they realized it pointed to David. And after that, they realized it pointed to Christ. And Mary herself could praise the Lord for what he had done in his kindness in allowing her to bring forth that child. But what we've seen today is that the first woman spans from creation to new creation creates the framework in which every other woman is able to do her part in leading up to the delivery of that Messiah. There are implications here for the church. The first is that women are mothers who raise spiritual children. Absolutely. And may we pray that God would assist them in doing so. Women are also mothers who help others, other moms and others in the church using that unique, God-given, image-bearing quality for the blessing of those in this body. But it also has a great implication for the world. As the old saying goes, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. No one can raise your child better than you. No one. They don't need to be handed off to professionals when they're still young to sob at your part departure. 
There's a special gift in child rearing, and it impacts the entire world. And there's a unique potential in you for childbearing. Not to become proud of what you've done or accomplished. Not to become despondent because it didn't turn out the way you'd hoped. Not to find your fulfillment and your identity in a man and children. And not to grind under the weight and pressure of a husband and family who didn't turn out but as a way for you as an image bearer to reveal to a watching world God's attributes through the Azer Kenegdo that he created when he took a good section out of Adam and formed her and brought her to him so that he could see with his own eyes, ah, this finally is the person with whom I can fulfill the commission on earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the precious gift of our mothers. Thank you for the biblical truth that shows us where their identity is anchored and found. Thank you for the name Eve and the reminder that from her would become the mother of all the living, both physically in this cursed world through birth and spiritually in this cursed world through the second birth. And Lord, for the role that she played in redemptive history, help us to see more clearly today as a consequence all the glory revealed about you in her. For it is in your name we pray. Amen.